All right. Thank you, guys. So Keelan leads our youth worship. He's one of our teenagers. So thank you for leading us. Uh, Steve. Yeah, give him a hand. Thanks, dude. Give me, shake my hand. Thank you. And he did all that with a missing string. That was incredible. And Steve, in the back there that was in the drum terrarium, uh, he is our youth director as well. So if you want to talk to them more about getting involved with the teen ministry, you could talk to either one of them. Uh, They'd love for you to visit. We usually do Sunday school at 1045, and they have a a Wednesday night. I think that's going to switch times. But anyway, they would love to talk to you more about the opportunities to get involved with the youth ministry. Um, We're continuing and finishing our series in Titus called Church is Not What You Think. Um, So if you have a Bible, open it up to Titus. If you don't have a a Bible, we have put some under the chairs. Grab the Black Bibles, turn to page 999. So you can grab a Black Bible, open it up to page 999. We're finishing up Titus. I want to thank Jim for teaching us last week. He did a great job. I asked him to jump in and teach because we were thinking my grandbaby was coming, and then she didn't come. And then we thought she was coming, and we went, but she still isn't coming yet. And so maybe, maybe in a week, but keep praying. Keep praying for my... My little girl, having a little girl, we're like, just wait, we're so excited. We're, we're super, super pumped. So anyway, keep praying for that. Um, so kind of where we are series-wise, we, we try to study books of the Bible, and then sometimes we'll do topical series at the church, occasionally try to kind of make our main diet, just working through books of the Bible. So we're finishing up Titus right now, Church is Not What You Think. The next week, kind of coinciding with the, the season before Easter, we're going to do a series on prayer. Uh, on prayer. Uh, I think it's something we all struggle with. Man, even those of us that have been praying for many years, it's just hard to know how to do that. So we're going to, instead of just doing a book study through one book of the Bible, we're going to do kind of a greatest hits on prayer, right? We're going to study some some key chapters in the Bible to talk about prayer and hopefully learn better how to be a praying people in that new series. So that series will coincide with what's sometimes called Lent, and we're going to put out a prayer guide and encourage you to pray through that for the 40 days of Lent, which is preparation for Easter. And just to kind of clarify, um, sometimes if you come from different traditions, Lent is seen as a time when you kind of like punish yourself to impress God for 40 days. It's not how we see it. Uh, we see it as a time just for prayer and reflection, maybe even fasting to just remind ourselves of how desperately we need Jesus. So we want to kind of encourage the entire church to be on the same page, praying through that. And so it's a real simple prayer guide that has like one or two scriptures and a simple prayer. You can pray each day during that time period. Um, And so those little paper guides are at the back of the room. If you want to get one this week, or you can get one the next week as well. And during that time, we'll be preaching through the topic of prayer simultaneously, right? So we'll all be focusing on that. Then after that, we're still not sure. Pray for us. The elders are meeting this week, and I've been talking to the pastors and elders about what series we might do next. Probably going to do a book study after that. Um, maybe 1 Corinthians, but it kind of scares me. We'll, we'll see. We're still trying to work that, work that through. So church is not what you think. That's where we are. We're finishing it up today, and we want to just recognize that you might have grown up in a healthy church, so you never stopped to think about how things were done, right? And we're always to be constantly reforming and looking back at the scripture and saying, what does God call us to do as a church? So number one, you might not really see the need, but we all need to keep looking back to the scriptures and be aligning ourselves with what Jesus says in his word. But you might have grown up in an unhealthy church. And I've heard a lot of horror stories. You might have just grown up in a messed up situation uh, where it was just unsafe, unhealthy. And so for you, I want to appeal to you that that was not what God built it to be. 
and that the scripture gives us clear direction of what it should be. Some of you just have no idea. You're, you're new to this whole thing. Um, and so again, f- f- no matter what direction we come from, we need to see what is God's plan for the church? Who are we supposed to be? And there's really two ways of thinking about the word church. Church means God's people. And so that can just mean every believer of all time everywhere, Right. We sometimes use the word universal church to talk about that. So if you're a believer, you're part of the church. But in the Bible, Titus is one of these books. He tells us how to organize ourselves in localities. We call that the local church. So that's the organization like we would call Grace Bible Church or a church down the road, right? You're organizing yourself uh, into this organization of believers that are trying to follow Jesus together. So we're learning about both of those aspects in this book. Today, we're calling it the grace-driven church as we finish up chapter three, the grace-driven church. We keep coming back to this theme. You could say the entire theme of the entire book of Titus is how grace affects how we live. He keeps kind of flipping back and forth to it, right? He talks about God's grace and then how that lives itself out in our life. Then he talks about God's grace and how that works itself out in our life. And we're hitting that theme again today. Um, Years ago, when I was in my kind of early 20s, I had this habit of always parking my car on a hill. Have you ever done that? I was a compulsive hill parker. And the reason I did that was because the starter in my stick shift was broken. And if you have a stick shift, it's this beautiful thing you can do where you put it in gear, you put the clutch in, you coast down the hill, and then you pop the clutch and it goes, you know, it lurches forward and the engine starts. It's a beautiful, it's a wonderful gift if you're cheap and don't want to get your starter fixed, right? Or if your battery dies and you need a jump, you can pop the clutch instead. I use that analogy to help focus our minds on the reality that a car works best when the engine is running, right? Have you ever needed to go to the grocery store and you thought, I'm going to jump in my car and go to the grocery store. And you thought, no, I think I'll just push the car to the grocery store put the groceries in it, and then push the car back, right? Would, would you ever do that? I hope not. If, if you would, we need to get you some help because that's, that's not the way a car is supposed to work. Same thing with the church. The church is not a bunch of people like pushing it forward, right? It's not like this machine that we're pushing. It's, it's the supernatural, grace-enchanted, grace-driven organization and organism, It's this living body. It's Christ's body is really how the New Testament talks about this. And so we are moving forward because grace has taken hold of us and is driving us forward. So let's look at the text. We're going to read chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 15, the grace-driven church. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Pause for just a minute. What saying? We'll get to that in a minute. It's what Jim preached on last week, but we'll, we'll review it. So the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis. For I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. 
And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let me pray for us. God, we need your grace. We are a weak and broken people, and we need you to teach us. We need you to open our eyes. We pray that you would inhabit this time, that your spirit would lead us to see more of you, to rejoice over your kindness to us, to grow in you, to be a church, a body, a people that are driven by your goodness, by your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So grace is what drives the church. That's the big idea. Um, And we get that big idea really starting with verse 8 where he says, the saying is trustworthy, insist on it. And then everything else rolls from there, right? So that's maybe the starter of this passage. Um, He's saying, you need this saying, which is referring back to last week. So we'll look at that in a minute. But just to kind of give you the outline of where we're headed, the first thing is he's going to say we need to insist on grace. It's got to be foundational repeated. We've got to like hammer it again and again. We've got to obsess over it. Insist on grace. And then he's going to talk about unity versus division. So I'm saying unify around grace. We've got to unify around grace. That's the positive way of saying it. He's also going to say we need to stop really talking to some people that are trying to divide us away from grace. So insist on grace, unify around grace. And then the third point, which is in that last little section, that's kind of the cleanup section at the end of the letter, we're going to say we need to organize for more grace. You see that Paul works in a team. So insist on grace. We need to unify around grace. And then we need to organize for more grace, right? It's this machinery, this team, this organization that we see get kind of eyes into Paul's organization there at the end. So first of all, we need to insist on grace. And we get this just from verse 8, although we have to cheat and look back at a little bit of last passage, uh, last week's passage to, to kind of fill it out, right? So look again at verse 8. Insist on grace. He says in verse 8, This saying, or the saying, is trustworthy. What saying? Well, what he just said, and that is verses like three through seven. We'll read that in a second. So the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So this, again, has been the theme throughout. He's speaking to Crete. It's this crazy, like, pirate culture that he's talking to here in Crete. And he's saying, we want you to live beautifully and do good things and have profitable lives, but the only way you'll get there is by insisting on grace, right? When we think we need to live good lives, what is the fleshly way that we think that's going to happen? Well, in our flesh, we think we're going to live good lives by just gritting it out by just digging in tighter, right? By just trying harder, by guilting others and ourselves, by manipulating, by forcing people to do good things. But how does the Bible say we're going to get good works? The Bible says we're going to get good works by insisting on grace. And we just have to recognize that that's counterintuitive. That's not how we think it should work. And that's not what we do to ourselves in our daily lives, right? How often... When you're having a good or a bad day, you're giving yourself this little, you know, like chew out session where you're, you're kind of yelling at yourself inside your, you ever do that, right? I'm so stupid. You should do better, right? But what Paul says is the way we're going to do better is by seeing again and again, God's kindness to us, his grace to us, his love and forgiveness. That's actually going to propel us to do good and beautiful things. 
So he says, this is a trustworthy saying, insist on these things, repeat them again and again. What's the trustworthy saying? Let's, now let's look back and look at the trustworthy saying. I'm going to reread it from last week. Jim did a great job covering it last week, but it is like central to the entire book. So we're going to cover it again. Okay. Starting in verse three, he says this, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And Jim did a good job pointing out last week that this is from the same Paul who said he was better than everybody else, right? According to legalistic churchy sort of righteousness, he was the best. So Paul is simultaneously saying, I was, according to the law, really, really, really good, better than everybody else. I'd memorized the Bible and I did everything right. But here he's admitting, I and you, we were all sinners. We were all sinners. So this is really important. To be a Christian, you have to have this mindset, okay? And this is shocking because some of you grew up in good Christian families and you've always been good and you've always been nice. But if you think God loves you because of that and not because of what he did in Jesus, then you're not actually a Christian. You're just a religious person, which is, you know, frankly, nice in some ways. I'd love to have you for a neighbor, but I want you to know that there's more for you, that Jesus loves you and it can transform your life. And so, again, he says, we were all this way. We ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. A sign that you don't really know Jesus if you're still caught in the cycle of hate. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He didn't save you because of the good works you did. He saved you because of his mercy. And then Paul's saying, and that's what propels us to do good works. He saved you without good works and says, now go, now go do good things because I saved you because I love you. I've adopted you. You're my child. You're mine. Now go live like it. So we have to always be making that distinction. He didn't save us because of how perfect and awesome we were. He saved us because he loves us, because he's gracious, because he's kind, because it's in the character of God. Jim quoted last week, Deuteronomy 7, 7. It's a famous one we come to again and again with the people of Israel. He said, I didn't save you because you were such an awesome tribe. I actually saved you because you were puny so that it would show my grace and my kindness, right? It was not about how great and big and powerful you were. It was really kind of about how small you were. He's like, hmm, who's a wimpy little tribe I could save so that everybody knows it was me that did it. And that's played out in all of our lives as individuals as well. He wants to show us as trophies of his grace and kindness. So he saved us not because of the righteous works we did, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So he washed away your sins. He didn't wait for you to wash your own sins and then come to him cleaned up. He came to you and washed away your sins. And now there's a process of renewal. He's still cleaning you up. You're not, you're not perfect yet. He's perfecting you. He's sanctifying you. So that's the big tension for us as Christians. He calls us holy. He sees us as we are going to be in the end. And he loves us and delights in us because he sees us through Christ. So he sees you now as perfect and as beautiful as Christ himself. He delights in you as you are through Christ, but he's also working out that stuff, right? He's having you put that away. He's renewing you. He's cleaning you up. You're putting sins aside. There's still a real life putting off of sins and putting on of Christ's righteousness that happens in real time, but it's based on the, the complete salvation that you already have now. 
And so this process is taking place because of his kindness, because of his grace. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we talk about justification by faith. And this is a summary of that, saying we're not justified by what we did. We're justified by his grace. We're made righteous. We're made just because of what he did. And goes on and says, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So now we're heirs. We're, in, we're inheritors, right? Uh, a lot of you are middle class. You're maybe never going to be rich. But by spiritual standards, we're rich. We have everything. We have this inheritance of the king of the universe. We're going to move into the mansion with Jesus in heaven. That's, that's what we're looking forward to. We're adopted into his family. He loves us. We belong to him. And then that, all that, is <laughs> what so Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. You can trust this. This gospel, this summary, that God saved you not because of how great you were, but because of how great he is. Because of his kindness. He took your sins upon himself on the cross. He gives you his resurrection life. He fills you with his Holy Spirit. It's what he did in his kindness and his grace, not because of how great you or I were. And Paul says, if we insist on this, if we can build our churches, right? Church is not what you think. Church is not about all the good people being cleaned up and better than everybody else. Church is about the bad people needing God's grace. And we're those people. And that's who we are. That's our organization. Like, God love me anyway? Hey, come on. I want you to join the party. And we're trying to invite others into this party. We're trying to invite others into this lifestyle of trusting and insisting on his grace and kindness to it, to us. So we just have to keep coming back to this again and again. As long as I'm alive, uh, this pulpit, this stage will be broadcasting this message. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, part of how I'm going to be replaced by someone who will continue to insist on these things is that all of you have learned to insist on these things. And we're an entire body of people that insist on these things. So if we have to hire another preacher or another teacher or another pastor or bring on another elder or bring another Sunday school teacher in, it'll just be permeated through our culture, right? We're all insisting on these things. It's not just top down, but it's bottom up. Like this is who we are. This is what we're about. It's about God's grace to us. It's not about how great we are. It's about what he's done for us. And so we want to continue to to say this to ourselves and organizationally to each other. So again, remember, church is not what you think. Church, church is people. It's not just a building, but it is a local organization. And so we are believers. That makes us the church from a biblical standpoint. But then those believers that are the universal church are then told to organize into local churches. And that's part of the instructions that he gives us in this letter and in First and Second Timothy as well. So when we insist on these things and keep coming back to them again and again, obsessing over grace, it begins to build neural pathways in our brain where we begin to say, yeah, this is normal. This is right. This is good. You know, repetition helps you learn. Have you ever heard that before? Repetition helps you learn. Have you ever been studying for a test and you just like read it over and over again, or you say it over and over again, or you underline it and reread it, and then you rewrite it, right? Repetition helps us learn. There's a picture here of what it looks like in your brain these are neural pathways, right? I'm not going to look at it too long because I don't really understand how all this works, but I do know that the way God made us, that when we repeat things, that helps us to own it. So it's really important that you would repeat the truth, right? The more you repeat the false gospel, that God only loves you when you do everything right, 
and you've got to wait until you clean up your life to get his attention, the more you're, you're going to get twisted by that false gospel. We have to insist on and devote ourselves to the true gospel, to the grace of what Jesus has done for us. We've just got to like keep obsessing over it, all of us. Not just the preacher's job. It's not just the Sunday school teacher's job. It's something we all have to do as God's people because our, our very identity depends on it. And so we want to insist on these things, devote ourselves to these things. And then what does he say? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So that. So we insist on grace so that will do good works. The opposite of that is insisting on our good works so that God will love us. Do you see how those are two opposite things? Both involve God's love and good works, but one gets it utterly backwards. So we have to insist on grace. It's God's grace. He saved me, not because of the righteous things I've done, but because of his mercy. Because of that, I'm going to live in a new way. Because of that, I'm going to want to follow him. Because of that, I'm going to want to stop and take time for you. And you're going to want to stop and take time for me. Because of that, I'm going to want to try to build good and beautiful things in my life. So he says, as you insist on these things, so that that'll produce these good works in our lives. A little interesting insight into good works. Um, When I hear good, and I'm reading in the New Testament, I always think moral framework, right? I think like um, not steal, not lie, right? And that is part of the definition of good. But the Greek word good has this connotation of beautiful. And I don't want us to miss that. So the, the way the Greek language works, good is not just moral, but it's beautiful and glorious. So he's saying, I want you to devote yourselves to beautiful works, you see that? He wants you to have a beautiful life, a life that people can look into and see. And then this makes sense of all these other places like in Peter and in Matthew, where he says, do these good works. And then people will see it and they'll praise God. They'll be like, God must be real because this person's life is legit and they're beautiful and they're kind. They care or they make beautiful things for the glory of God, right? There's so many different ways that we can do this. So what are some of the good works that God has for you? Like what's some of the low hanging fruit as, as you insist on grace and you believe more and more that God loves you and he's given himself to you, then what's that going to produce? For some of you, that looks like you're going to be a different kind of commander. You're going to be the kind of commander that doesn't just care about himself, but genuinely cares about his troops and the mission. And there's going to be something beautiful and supernatural there that can't just be explained by the flesh and how smart you are. But there's going to be this like supernatural thread of grace that's woven through that. A lot of you are educators. It's going to mean you're not just about giving information and controlling the classroom, right? But because God loves you, you love your students. You love them. That grace is going to be visible. It's going to be beautiful. Sometimes this is described as the apologetic of beauty. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Apologetics is the art of giving a defense for our faith, like explaining why it makes sense. And so there's a way to do that in like argumentation, you know, like we kind of work through the reasons for our faith and why it's reasonable. But there's this whole other apologetic of beauty. And that, that occurs again and again in the New Testament. Live a beautiful life. Do good things. Make beautiful things. Be kind. People are going to see that and know that there's a God in heaven that loves us. So I don't want to go into the full 
kind of extreme of, and so then you don't have to say anything. Just do your good stuff, right? We still want to be able to explain, give a reason for the hope that's within us. We still want to be able to connect the dots and say, yeah, I believe God loves me because of his grace, not because of what I've done, but he came and took my sins upon himself. He gives me his resurrection life. He's forgiven me. We want to be able to articulate that. But primarily, the New Testament again and again says, if you believe grace, you're going to live a beautiful life. What are some other things that you could do? Maybe um, here's a simple one for our day and age, just like putting down the screen, putting down the phone and paying attention to people, right? If you believe that God's grace has invaded your life, you're going to be less likely to want to escape this world. And maybe you're going to be more content to be in this world and say, Jesus came into this world to love me. I'm going to stay in this world and love the people around me. Maybe you'll put down the phone. Maybe you'll put down the, the screen, whatever it might be. Uh, maybe it's coaching kids sports, just getting involved in the community, right? I'm trying to give a laundry list of different ways this looks because we're all different, right? So I'm not saying all of you have to do all these things, right? Simultaneously coach kids sports, be a teacher, be a commander, and, um, you know, make homebrew your own coffee, you know, all this stuff. Like, but we want to make beautiful things. We want to do beautiful things as a fruit of what God has done for us. So maybe it's coaching kids sports. Uh, maybe it's cleaning your friend's house when they're sick, when they're overwhelmed. Um, maybe cooking a meal for somebody. Uh, maybe mowing their lawn, helping them out, just paying attention, giving people the time of day. It's going to look different in all of our scattered lives, but it's going to be the fruit of the same grace that God has shown to us. Uh, maybe it looks like jumping in more with the ministries here. We talk about serve on a team, right? We say that's an important step in your process. So some of you are serving out in the community. You're doing all kinds of stuff. In the name of Jesus, God bless you. Thank you. Do, keep going. Um, but for a lot of you, you're new to this whole thing of walking with Jesus. And we'd say, man, a great next step is to jump on one of our teams to serve in the nursery or to serve with the children. That can help you grow as a follower of Jesus. Begin gaining that experience. You're working out these good works because he's been good to you. He's shown you grace first. Okay, the next section is that we should then unify around grace. Unify is the positive word. Um, separate would be the negative word. He uses a lot of negative words in this text, but the, the positive way of framing that is we should all align around this grace that we're insisting on. Okay, so let's look at the text in verse 9. He says it this way, but avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So the Jews would get caught up in their lineage, right? Kind of a confusion, confusion of, of racism uh, with spirituality, where they'd think, oh, I'm connected to important people through the genealogy and stuff, which those genealogies were symbolic, but they were not meant to actually save anyone, right? There's all these things in, in the Old Testament that God used as like a canvas to paint a picture that he's a holy God that will save people through sacrifice, right? So all the stuff in the Old Testament is painting that picture. And then when Christ came, people were confused and they're like, well, we, we'll st we still need those Old Testament pictures. And you're like, well, no, they're, they're helpful to help us understand Christ, but Christ is the thing, right? He's here now. It's kind of like looking at a picture of your wife, but not hugging her when she's standing right behind you, right? Like, yeah, the picture's nice, but she's right here. And so that's that transition from Old Testament symbols to the reality that we have in Christ now. They're good, they're beautiful, they help us, they teach us. But what happens, and this is where it gets so confusing, is we understand who Jesus is, and we understand that he's revealed in this book, 
But what we want to do is we want to put Jesus aside and focus on, well, you really need to learn more about these Old Testament feasts. You really need to understand more about these genealogies. And sure, Jesus is okay, but he's not really enough. You need this, right? And so we have to guard on that, guard against that as a people, and just recognize that uh, one of the ways that we'll get pulled towards um, being distracted away from God's grace is through religious alternatives to God's grace, right? Because we know we, we get the definitions of God's grace from this book. And so then what happens is everybody that says they're teaching from this book, we're like, oh, well, I, I guess I should pay attention to that person because they're teaching from this book, right? But you got all these charlatans teaching from this book all the time. So you got to insist on God's grace revealed to us in Jesus. That's, that's like the key to understand that people are teaching this book the right way because he's the point of the book. And so we can get lured away to kind of Jewish Old Testament varieties, alternatives to Jesus and being a grace-centered, grace-driven church, but we need to unify around this grace and, and not around all these other alternative genealogies, controversies, quarrels about the law. Um, so just be on guard about that. Should we study our Old Testament? Yes. But always remember that the key is Jesus, and we're ultimately justified through him and not how much we know about the Old Testament or not how properly we pronounce Hebrew words, right? Like there's this kind of weird sidelining that happens. I see it all the time with people. They get excited about the Old Testament. There's so much to learn. Study the feasts. Study the law. There's so much there, but let it keep pushing you to Jesus. Study it so that you see how great Jesus is. Don't study it so you can say, this is where it goes bad. I'm, I'm better than those people because I know the Hebrew pronunciation of Yeshua, right? And I practice the feast and I do all these Old Testament. You know, like there's a way where we can kind of think we're smarter than other people and better than other people because we studied these things. No, those things should drive us towards the humility of he saved us, not because of any smart things I did, but because of his mercy. Another place I see this showing up in the church today is with healthy lifestyle stuff, right? And this kind of overlaps with Jewish stuff because they were all, all about symbolic eating. Healthy lifestyles are great, right? Good diets are good. Working out is good. Um, but know that it doesn't save you, right? I would even go so far to say is if you're really excited about your diet or if you're really excited about like the books you're reading or the educational model you're following um, or, you know, CrossFitters, right? You're all into this workout schedule. That's great. Like, Invite other people into that joy that you have, right? If you're into essential oils, I'm old. I even use them sometimes. I think they sometimes are helpful, sometimes. Um, but these things don't cure everything, right? Jesus cures everything. Reread Romans 8. If you find your heart being drawn to, this is the answer. Go back to Romans 8. It says, all of us, all of creation is groaning. We're all groaning, the whole world is groaning. It's broken and we're groaning and waiting and longing for Jesus to come back and finish what he started. So we've got these little tools along the way that are helpful and good and beautiful. And we can invite friends into them, but don't, don't make them divisive. Don't divide over these things. He says, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's tough for us, right? Because I think our culture is extreme of like, we should never divide. We should always just kind of respect everybody and be in this big soup pot of we all just get along, right? Um, and there are some benefits to that. So here's, here's how I divide this up. Um, organizationally, 
we must be led and devoted by this insistence on Jesus and God's grace. Person to person, you have a friend that disagrees with you, you respect them, you honor them, you listen to them. Because all human beings are made in the image of God. We all have inherent value. We're all made in God's image. And that's what allows us to show dignity to every kind of person. So those are kind of like two different spheres, right? But if our organization starts saying that organizationally and says, well, we, we respect everything. So next week, you know, we're going to have a, you know, you're saved by diet sermon. And the next week you're going to have a, you're saved by exercise sermon. And then the next week you're going to have a, you know, you're saved by the, the God that's in everything. Sermon. You know, like we just start veering off of Jesus. We're not a church anymore, right? <laughs> like he's saying your, your job, your existence, your identity as a church is to be devoted to Jesus and, and preach that. If you're not, you're, you're just not a church anymore. Can we still show kindness to people individually? Of course. And so here's where the rubber really meets the road. Some of you are here, you're skeptics, and you have serious questions about Jesus. You have serious questions about the Bible, if you can trust the Bible, if you can trust Jesus, if all this really happened, or if all of it makes sense. We are so glad you're here. We are so glad you're here. We want you to feel welcomed, respected, honored, listened to. If you then say, can I start teaching Sunday school and teaching my doubts and teaching alternatives to Jesus? We'd say, no, we're not, we're, we're going to divide over that. But are you welcome? Yes, you're welcome here. Ask your questions, pursue Jesus. Like, so we have to kind of look at it from different angles. We're here all to, to understand Jesus better. That's, that's why we're organized together is to get to know Jesus and if you are getting to know Jesus as a believer, great. If you're getting to know Jesus as a non-believer and a skeptic, great. We're glad you're here. Are we going to let you, though, kind of reorganize who we are and say, hey, let's be all about the doubts? Well, no, we're, we're going to be about focusing on, on Jesus. And so that's what he's talking about here. There are times to divide, times to have the conversation. He's talking here organizationally. We're not going to allow ourselves to get taken off course. We're going to unify around grace. And he says this person that keeps arguing about it, that keeps insisting on it, keeps making it central, we're going to warn a couple times and say, okay, well, we, we can't have this conversation anymore, right? Because we're about Jesus. We're, we're not about that other thing you want to pull us off to. Um, he goes on and says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And so even that, again, 21st century sounds so harsh, right? But he's saying, you're not, you're not condemning him. They're saying, I, I don't want life. I want this, these other alternatives to life. I don't want Jesus. I want everything else. They're saying, okay, well, we, we give people over to what they want. That's even our understanding of what hell is. Hell is, is ultimately this, this monument to God saying, well, okay, if you don't want me, you can have eternity without me. But we describe that as a very, very horrible, horrible option. Um, so a few weeks ago, we were talking about leadership and how we need to be careful and precise about this. We don't want to just become heresy hunters that are like sniffing out anything that's slightly off track and just kind of, you know, going guns blazing and tearing down everything. We want to be very precise. So we talked a lot about how helpful it is to do some worldview study, to like understand what you believe, understand what other people believe, and be able to distinguish between the two. And so the illustration I use, I shouldn't move this, right, because it's grossing some people out. It's a scalpel. So the illustration I used a few weeks ago that I think is still helpful is when a surgeon goes to operate, he doesn't just like cut everything out, right? If there's something that needs to be dealt with, he just, he focuses as minimally as possible on the stuff that needs to be taken care of. 
And we want to think in the same way. Like, we're a, we're a body. We want to love each other. We want to honor, honor each other. But we want to be very precise about, well, when, when do things take us away from Jesus and when do things help us love Jesus more? And we want to set these things aside and, and have more of these other things. Um, so there's, there's got to be a precision there. We want to continue to insist on grace. Another way that I think is helpful to think about this when we think about division is that we should insist on grace and not our methodological, it's a hard word to say, methodological preferences, not our methods, right? And this is where churches really get caught up. We're an organization that's focused on Jesus and proclaiming his goodness to us. And we start saying, man, meeting at 1045 is the only way to do it. Like if you meet at 1130, you are a heretic, man. You are causing division because everybody knows you got to meet at 1045. Well, of course not. We, of course, that's idiotic, right? We can see it in the peripheral cases, but the closer it gets to our heart, the harder it is to see, right? Like, especially like music. Christians are terrible about music. Why is that? Why are we so weird about music? Well, I think music is a very personal thing, right? Like music is just like hooked into our heart. So if the church is doing music we don't like, that church is evil. If it's doing what we like, well, that's what everybody should do, right? <laughs> it's this weird thing, and it happens in a lot of areas. And we're called on not to be divisive, not to be divisive, not to say, you've all got to do it my way, but to recognize, no, Jesus is the answer. Um, this word heretic is in the Greek division. Someone who causes division, that's that Greek word. In Greek, it's heretic. So that's where we get heretic from. Heretic doesn't just mean someone who believes the wrong thing. Heretic means someone who believes the wrong thing and is trying to pull everybody with them. That, that's what that implies. You're dividing the body. You're trying to pull people away from Jesus. And that's what we want to not tolerate. We want to insist on unifying around grace. Okay, we'll move on to the last point. We also want to organize for more grace. Verses 12 through 15, as I said, this is kind of the cleanup section at the end. Um, and there are a lot of words like this at the end of Paul's letters, where we get insight into Paul was a real person leading a ministry team that was in multiple cities, and he needed other people. This is so important for us to see. Being spiritually healthy goes along with needing other people. You see that? Let me say that again. Being spiritually healthy coincides with needing other people. The opposite of that is, don't think that it's spiritually unhealthy to need people. We're made to need people. And so we want to organize for more grace by leaning on each other. One of the ways this is described in the New Testament and multiple other places is that we are one body with many parts. Um, one body with many parts. I had an elbow injury for about three months. It was driving me crazy. And I had to lean on my left hand more because my right hand was a little messed up, Right? Everybody, every, everybody, everybody's different. That sounds weird. Everybody is different and everybody is different. Okay. We're all different. Some of you are stronger in some ways than others. You know, some of us have more gifts, less gifts, but the body is a unified whole. And that's the way the New Testament talks about the church. God's people, we're all aligning and trying to go in the same direction. And, and where we are at Grace Bible Church, we, you know, we might be weak in this area. And so we need to then lean more on these other strengths to make up for those weaknesses. And that's going to be unique to every church body around. But there should be this organizing together where the body is trying to go in the same direction to help more people to see Jesus and enjoy this grace that he's given to us. That's, that's why we exist. So look at verse 12. 
He says it this way, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis for I've decided to spend the winter there. So he's like, I haven't even decided who I'm sending. I'm going to send one of these guys to you. They're going to take your spot, right? Any of you ever played sports? You're like, I can tell you're tired. You're going to come out and we're going to send in this other guy who's going to spot you. This gal's going to come in and take your spot for a little while so you can rest. Then you'll come back out. You know, there's this subbing in and out. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. He's like, I need you to help me here. So I'm going to send this other guy to help your people there. And we're rotating around. This is part of organizing for more grace. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So there are going to be other guys that you're going to have to help. You're going to have to give, like, we think probably they need some money or they need some supplies for whatever mission they're going on. So help them out. They're going to need something that you can give them, right? And just another little side note here. Apparently, lawyers can be Christians. So it's good news for you. I think we've got a couple of, we've got a deacon. It's a lawyer. So I know he loved that verse. So Speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos. And so these are workers that are helping out with a mission. He's saying, give, give them what they need to help them along in what they're doing. And he goes in verse 14, coming back to the good works thing again. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Those are the beautiful works. So as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So here's another application of good and beautiful works is to be able to help out with urgent needs. This implies that good and beautiful works are not just us being kind or making beautiful things, but it's also like having our financial house in order so that we can be generous to others, right? So for some of you to get your financial house in order to live a beautiful life, you need to like take a Dave Ramsey budget class, right? That might be it. Or, or maybe you already know how to do that and you just need to do it, right? That's more me. I've taken like four of these classes. I just got to like, okay, I got to focus. I got to work on the budget, right? But we need to maintain order in our financial situation. He says here, so that we can live a beautiful life of, of helping others out. So we can have some stability. God's people should live beautiful lives in all these different ways. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So again, I think the main point here that's really helpful is to recognize that the church is an organization. We're a team playing a sport. And we just need to recognize that because a major central part of how we do church is all of you in chairs facing one direction, we can think that church is a theater. Church is not a theater. We use some aspects of theater architecture to pull off some of our meetings, right? But it's not a theater, and Christians are not spectators. This is just one part of what we do during the week. But you are also scattered throughout the week to live this out. And you are to organize yourselves with one another. I, I deputize you to go be Christians in the world and help each other out, right? And then I invite you into the organization we call Grace Bible Church to say, hey, we, we need you to give financially. We need you to volunteer in our nursery and volunteer in our children's ministry. You know, we need you to participate and organize with us to help us execute the vision God's called us to. But on both sides, the, the kind of visible local church and the invisible scattered every believer everywhere side, we are to organize for more grace. We are to organize because we are a a missionary organization. We're left here to share Jesus with the rest of the world. That's the church's job. That's why we exist. One of the only organizations in the world that exists for non-members. That's who the church is. We exist for non-members. Are we members? Yeah, we're members. We're part of, we're part of Jesus, 
but we exist for those that aren't yet members. It's, it's a weird thing. So are you organizing? Here's a way that I think is helpful to think about this by way of application. Oh, I had a picture here of the sports team. So again, remember you're on the team, you're not a spectator, right? And so illustration-wise, you're actually a player. So if you're sitting watching other people play, something's wrong. You are to be playing. We all play in different ways, right? You might have a different role than I do. Your role may not look just like my role, right? We're one body with many parts, but you should be playing if you belong to Jesus. Divide up your relationships into these three categories. Do you have someone that you can encourage? Maybe you're farther along in the faith. If you're really young, sometimes you're like, well, I just met Jesus last week. I don't know that I'm ahead of anybody. Well, you're like, you might be one day ahead of somebody, right? (laughs) There's someone that you can encourage. So think about people that are younger than you in the faith that you can encourage. Think about the category of people that are by your side in the faith, right? A co-laborer, a partner in crime, so to speak, that you're kind of doing life with, that you're helping out, that you're praying for, um, you're, you're encouraging, you're serving Jesus together. Organize with that person as well. And the third category of person is maybe someone who's a little bit ahead of you, that you can ask questions, that you can look up to. We all want to have those kinds of relationships in our life. That's one of the basic ways, right? Basic organization for more grace. So have these kinds of relationships. Do you have someone in each of those categories? Someone that you look up to that you can ask to pray for you, ask questions of? Someone that you're side by side with, you can do life with, you can go out and try to push back darkness in the world and trust Jesus more together? Do you have someone that you're, you're leading? Again, I want to invite you to think in those ways to organize ourselves for more grace. So we'll wrap up here. We, we've talked about the grace-driven church, and I was thinking about another, another illustration of driving, and really driving by grace. I've noticed this thing when I go to visit our global partners in other countries, I seem to be like a more joyful and fun-loving version of myself when I'm in those situations. And so I've kind of analyzed it. I'm like, that's kind of weird. Like I'm more relaxed when I'm in this foreign country that I don't understand. I seem to be having more fun. I seem to be more joyful. I seem to be more like in the moment. I'm like, what is happening there? And I, I started to think, you know, what's actually happening is I don't have to drive, Right? I don't have to drive, both literally and metaphorically. Literally, I don't have to drive, right? Like missionary partners driving me around the city, like, look at this, look at that. And I just get to like take it all in. Like, oh, this is beautiful. Wow, this is where you live. This is what you do, right? But also metaphorically, I don't have to drive. Because here, I'm kind of a leader, and I'm always trying to think a few steps ahead, and like, what do we need to do next? And what's broken, right? And this is like this burden I carry. But over there, I just get to learn. I'm, I'm just there to listen, to learn, to encourage them, to love them, to make sure they know as our partners that they're seen and that they're loved and that we're with them, right? So I have this, this great freedom. And then it started to occur to me, you know what? That's how I should live every day. Like that kind of freedom and joy and some who have gone on these trips with me would even say goofiness, right? That kind of reckless abandon, I'm just here to take it all in, to love the people around me, to be a learner, to be humble, because someone else is driving the car. That, that's how we should live every day, right? Because Jesus isn't in charge. Jesus is in charge. He's left us here to do his work, and he's the one actually driving the ship. And he's saying, join with me. Let me take you around. Let me show you the city. 
let, let me help you to see this world I've made for you. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to fix it all completely eventually. But right now, there are, there are people I want you to see and love and recognize their need and see how they need more of me. It's like Jesus is just saying, relax and, and enjoy the ride. Make the most of, of every moment because his grace is what's driving us forward. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and that you've shown us grace, not because we earned it or deserved it or worked for it, but you showed us grace because you're gracious. And so we pray that you would keep remaking our, our minds and keep shaping us and renewing us and leading us forward so that we would be propelled by your grace to share your grace with more people. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that we belong to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.